Hey there guys, welcome to the Holy Shed, which this time comes from a prayer shed. Yes, that's what it is. I know it looks a bit plain, but I suppose prayer sheds are supposed to be plain, aren't they? But it's a prayer shed uh, in the grounds of a lovely retreat centre called Holland House in Worcestershire, where I've been leading a weekend retreat with a lovely little bunch of people, some of whom had never heard of the Holy Shed. I know, never heard of the Holy Shed. Well, they have now, I can tell you. But look, this place is fabulous. I'm sitting here looking out of the window. Uh, there's all daffodils all around here. And down below me, there is a calm river with ducks and geese swimming by now and again on it. It is fabulous. I don't know if I can show it you. Let me see if I can give you a glimpse. Can you see that? It's impressive, isn't it? Absolutely fabulous. And just get my microphone back in place. So, yeah, we've been having a great time here and uh, I'm just looking forward now to, to getting back home before long and have a little bit of put my feet up back at home. Now, I want to say a very big thank you to Rob, who left a comment on YouTube this week uh, after watching the Holy Shed birthday video. Rob, uh, he said, even on days when my atheistic thinking reasserts itself, I feel drawn to the Holy Shed. Well, that's flipping great. That's fabulous, Rob. And hey, you're in good company because there's plenty of doubts in this place, let me tell you. And talking about the equinox, we were, weren't we? Uh, <laughs> anyway, what a fantastic spring week we have had across the UK. It's all going to change now, so we're told, but we've had a fantastic week. And we took advantage of it, me and my missus. There we are. Had a day off down at Lyme Regis. Almost got sunburned. Well, except for the fact that we weren't quite dressed for it. Me and my leather jacket and my favourite trilby, which I bought years ago from a charity shop, and I still love it to bits. And look, while we were there, this little chap just, you know, kept hopping around us, really. Uh, a gorgeous little rock pipit. Um, and, you know, it was almost like a robin, the way it was sort of just hopping around us. A very beautiful, feathery slice of heaven just wonderful and uh oh, i just want to tell you a little bit about this guy too um <laughs> he didn't come bobbing toward us at lyme regis this is colin who lived at the bottom of our road when we were in the vicarage in north london and uh, colin passed away in the last week or so so i wanted to pay some kind of tribute to him really um colin you know he's an interesting guy he would he would often ring our doorbell mostly late at night when he was half cut uh, generally wanted me to say a prayer for him or something like that you know I mean we never had a choice about letting him in he's, he's six foot odd big guy with a mostly a full-length leather coat and you kind of opened the door to see who it was and he kind of just lunged in on you and and there was no choice really and then he would throw his arms around me inevitably and kiss me full on the lips and say, I love you, Father Dave. Not like that. <laughs> and, um, I don't know if you remember in Rev, you know, that uh, stunningly brilliant, accurate sitcom about a vicar called Adam that was on BBC Two. Um, well, he had a drinking parishioner too called Colin. And I, I think every vicar should have a Colin down the road, don't you? So fancied himself as a bit of a guitarist, this one. God bless you, Colin. You went too soon. You gave me so many wonderful stories, some of them yet to be told here in the shed. Uh, but meanwhile, 
Rest in peace, mate. So let's light a candle for, for Colin. Let's light a candle for people who annoy us sometimes, you know, challenge us, but often amuse us too and help us to see things about ourselves that we might not otherwise have noticed. So uh, I invite you to light a candle now for someone uh, that you're thinking about at this time. Whether it's someone that you know, someone close to you, you who you've lost or thinking about people far away in another land who are losing so much. Let's open our hearts to all those who are being oppressed in one way or another at this time. And here's a little prayer. Thank you, God, for colourful people in our life. People who challenge us, yet make us smile. Thank you for people who give us jip. Who make us mad or sad or peeved. But sometimes help us to see things we otherwise wouldn't see if we keep our eyes and hearts open. Thank you for saints and sinners who both remind us that really we are a bit of both. But mostly just ordinary. Amen. Now, uh, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, if you know what I mean, I was a national leader in something called the House Church Movement, an enterprise, see what I did there, an enterprise which was the most burgeoning religious phenomenon in this country in the 1970s and in different forms uh, elsewhere too. It was part and parcel of uh, the charismatic movement and our raison d'etre, if you like, uh, was to restore New Testament style ministry today, complete with speaking in tongues and prophesying and apostles and prophets and all that kind of thing. And as a, a ridiculously young man, I was recognised as an apostle, which is kind of a church planter really. And I went on to lead uh, an apostolic team of 15 people with oversight of 50 or 60 churches in this country. Uh, it's like a kind of a house church bishop, if you like. But in addition to that, an international ministry too, especially in, you know, in East Africa, South America and other places. Well, as you can probably detect, it's been downhill from there, from Apostle to Church of England Vicar but I'm pretty content. The house church movement was, as I say, charismatic in nature, believing in, you know, spiritual gifts today. But at the same time, although, you know, probably, probably we thought of ourselves as being pretty radical in all of that, actually, um, the house church movement remained pretty solidly locked into an essentially fundamentalist vision of faith and scripture. Uh, academic theology, especially of a critical or liberal nature, was a scourge in the house churches um, seen to be something that was part of an enemy strategy if you like the enemy uh, and revelation you know could only come directly from the holy spirit and and uh, so so yeah you know critical theology was basically of the devil um, 
Frankly, I rose to the dizzy heights of house church leader some time before my own critical intelligence kicked in. And actually there were a lot of people around leading lights in that movement who had university educations, uh, very intelligent people who, who nevertheless seemed to have opted or been pressed into a simplistic interpretation of scripture that didn't really bear much scrutiny, including, crucially, uh, a very straightforward accommodation of essentially uh, sexist understandings of the Pauline letters, the letters of St Paul. By the late 70s, early 1980s, um, my interest in academic theology had begun to burgeon, basically, and my thinking was increasingly critical or questioning, um, eventually leading me, as you know, to serious academic study of biblical hermeneutics, biblical interpretation. Um, all house churches uh, back in those days were essentially led by exclusively male teams of elders uh, based on a supposed Pauline principle of male headship. Women, you know, they were okay in their place. Women could have ministries uh, in the church, but never of an authoritative or a headship nature. You know, that they were basically to be subject to men, period. Well, as you might guess, I dumped all that long, long, long ago and went ahead, even back then, in appointing women elders and pastors in the churches for which I was then responsible. I was told by some people that I had thrown away the Bible and succumbed to a secular feminist agenda. Actually, you know, I never stopped wrestling with scripture, though I did it, as Karl Barth put it, with the Bible in one hand, now read through the lens of the best biblical scholarship that I could find, and a newspaper, uh, as it were, in the other hand, by which I mean I tried to synthesise the, the world of the Bible with the world of today, the world that I was living in, because I can't believe in any form of divine revelation that just kind of suddenly comes to a halt, you know, that ended at the completion of the Bible or whatever, as I was often told. Uh, I think the Spirit of God continues uh, to reveal divinity, not just through ancient tradition, but through science and art and new trends of thought in philosophy and psychology and sociology. And yes, feminism too. I think divine revelation is everywhere in the world, uh, if we have an ear to hear it. One day, toward the end of, of my era in, in the house church world, but I was well on the way uh, out of it, a young woman approached me after a talk I gave at a large conference on gender equality, and she said, my elders cast a spirit of feminism out of me. Well, I looked at her and I said, hang on a minute, love, I'll see if I can get it back into you. <laughs> it was around this time in the mid-1980s that I realised that Paul was often invoked in ways that actually contradicted things he himself said, but were kind of overlooked, really. Also in ways that utterly opposed the principles of social justice, equality, inclusion that, that I completely associate with the kingdom of God that Jesus uh, taught about. And I discovered way back there, you know, like 40 years ago, that Paul very likely didn't write all the letters that had his name on them that, uh, you know, actually he wrote just seven 
of the 13 letters attributed to him and um, that there are in the New Testament actually three Pauls and um, as I said last time that the first Paul the one who wrote those seven letters the kind of real Paul if you like we could call him I think the radical Paul uh, the writer of the pastoral epistles first and second Timothy and Titus I think I would call him the reactionary Paul because uh, the, there are texts in those letters which completely contradict the much earlier writings of the radical Paul uh, uh, at very significant points. And uh, the writers uh, or writer of the other letters, you know, like Ephesians, Colossians and two Thessalonians, uh, I think we could call him or them the conservative Paul because at important points, uh, these epistles accommodate the real Paul's ideas to the cultural norms of Rome. Uh, as I say, pretty much, I pretty much knew this 40 years ago. It, it's, there's nothing new about it. I didn't make it up. Uh, it's our most mainstream, not conservative, but most mainstream scholarship has understood Paul for a very long time. And by the way, it doesn't mean that I don't find divine revelation in those other letters that are not the, the kind of original or the real Paul letters. Um, it just means that I can recognise that there are things there which contradict what Paul says elsewhere. The radical Paul clearly states that in Christ there is neither male and female, neither Jew or Greek, uh, not slave or free. Um, this statement profoundly deconstructs the hierarchy uh, the hierarchical social order of the Roman world. Um, I would say it's like a Magna Carta, if you like, for an inclusive society. It's like planting, it's only a small, you know, verse or two, but it's like planting a little seed in the ground that is then going to spring up and become an enormous great oak. And um, I personally have no doubt that in our world, this Paul, the Paul who wrote those letters, uh, he would extend the categories in that statement to include, say, well, to say there's neither gay nor straight, neither black or white, disabled and non-disabled, and whatever else that you may uh, think of to name. Because the principle is what matters, and the principle is that in Christ, hierarchies are abolished. You know, when we look through that lens of Christ, equality and inclusiveness become the order of the day that's what he's saying he's not saying that men cease to be men women cease to be women or or necessarily you know obviously black people won't change their skin to white and the other way around and so on but it's not talking about that it's talking about the social hierarchies that have been and in many ways still are attached to these categories that when we enter into the the realm of Christ and what he represents that's all abolished we are now into an egalitarian state of affairs of course Paul wasn't right about everything that he said or thought of course not I mean he was a first century person wasn't he as was Jesus you know to believe that Paul or Jesus was a feminist say or an LGBT campaigner is just ridiculous it's a ridiculous anachronism um, they were people of their day and certainly there are a lot of things 
that the genuine Paul did say that I still want to sit down and have, you know, several words with him about. Um, so, you know, take all that into account. But it's no, it's no surprise. We live in different worlds, you know, have different insights and understandings, um, a different worldview. I live in a scientific age uh, where rational thought has helped to shape a new way of perceiving the world. Um, you know, Paul's world was, was very different to that. And so, um, well, I mean, look, for, for example, Paul apparently believed, if you read his letters, that the world order was about to end. You know, the world was going to come to an end in his lifetime with the return of Jesus, etc. Well, hey, it didn't happen, <laughs> obviously. And yet that belief influenced Paul's thinking deeply. You know, it's the background to, for example, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul advocates celibacy i mean he doesn't sort of make it a burden he doesn't direct it on people but he says i wish you would be like me he apparently was celibate and he wanted people to to be celibates like him because he thought that you know marital attachments and all that goes with that would be a great burden make it much harder in those days of conflict that were leading up to the second coming i mean that's clearly the way he was saying it but here's the thing Throughout that entire passage of 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul speaks about celibacy and also divorce, which he interprets, you know, more conservatively than most of us would today. But where he talks about these things, he basically does it on the assumption of gender equality, you know. So if you read through that passage, you find that whatever's good for the goose is good for the gander. You know, no woman or man can decide unilaterally what to do with their bodies in the context of the marriage you know they can't just decide i'm going to be celibate he said no you you know man your body belongs to your wife woman your body belongs to your husband so and it, but it was entirely equal that's the real point that i'm trying to make also where he allows for the possibility of divorce and i'm not going to do a complete bible study here now you can look at it for yourself i'm just trying to give you a different feel really um, but where he talks about divorce uh, he's emphatic that it has to be in the context of mutuality, that it's not just men that have a right to divorce their wives. Women can divorce their husbands. There are equal rights with regard to um, divorce and celibacy on all counts. You know, this differed from the prevailing uh, customs and tradition in the Roman Empire where women were universally subject to men. Now, Another tricky little passage in, is that one in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul speaks about hats. Well, it's not actually hats. He talks about wearing veils in the same way that we see in the, in the Muslim community today. And the fact is, you know, I've thought for a long time reading that passage. I do wish that Paul was a better writer, you know, because it isn't clear. And there is no scholarly consensus to what Paul is actually talking about in that passage what the issue actually was um you know i mean perhaps some married women were insisting on their right to celibacy asserting their virginal status if you like by removing their matri matrimonial veils uh thereby creating conflict within families because you know it was an issue of shame uh in a hierarchical society and so you know uh, Paul argues about veils. He talks about hair and how, how you wore your hair, long hair or whatever. 
Um, and he talks about these in the context or on the basis of creation and nature, which is why some conservative people say, oh, well, there it is. You know, he's not just arguing from an opinion or something. This, this is, he's arguing from, you know, the created order of things, from what is natural. But, you know, uh, he goes on to say, actually, but if anyone's contentious about these things, we have no such custom. So that's interesting, isn't it? Nor do the churches of God, he says. So, you know, look, is his argument based on creation, on what's natural, or on custom? Well, I have no doubt in my mind that it's on the basis of custom. Um, what was thought natural and what's thought natural in one society or at one point in time within a society is inevitably going to be linked to to custom and 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 nature and, and culture but but it changes with time thank god so you know I, I think it's all a bit of a storm in a teacup really it's it, it's about because you know the real point is that we're actually reading somebody else's mail when we read you know these letters it's a letter, 1 Corinthians, to a particular set of people answering particular questions which have been raised with him, which, frankly, don't mean much to us at all. We live in a different world with a different set of questions. We were talking to Paul. We wouldn't be asking him about the wearing of veils or how long your hair should be or whatever, you know. But from the very start of his discussion, and this is the important thing, it is explicitly clear that Paul assumes that a Christian assembly would include both men and women praying and prophesying in public, taking part in the public life of the church, where equality of contribution is taken for granted. Women and men uh, are equal in the community that's the basic assumption behind uh, you know all of these sort of arguments and sits um, but that said by the way it totally contradicts a comment that's then made in chapter 14 of first corinthians where the writer says let women keep silent and that so contradicts everything that has gone before that many scholars see that statement as what's called an interpolation which just means something that's been added later by a subsequent scribe or whatever. And, you, you know, you just need to bear in mind there are no original, no one has the original letters that Paul wrote uh, or any other documents in the New Testament. What we have are, you know, copies of copies of copies that then have been translated and retranslated and retranslated. Um, so there's, there's a lot of scope for all kinds of things to happen in that process. But the, but the plain point is, Paul clearly would not change his mind so radically in a matter of a chapter or two from saying, you know, this is assuming that men and women both equally take part in the assembly, to then saying, women have got to keep silent. No, no, that, that can't be right, which is why I personally go with, uh, you know, a, a strong opinion held in scholarly circles that these are added this is something that somebody added later who holds the same sort of view that the writer to First uh, Timothy did, um, which I'll get to in just a moment. Um, elsewhere, Paul clearly indicates that women were key leaders in the church, you know, part of the apostolate, if you like. Uh, in Romans 16, he mentions 27 individuals by name who were co-workers and colleagues with him in some way or other. And nearly half of those people are women, you know. Um, and five women and six men 
are singled out for special attention. There's no differentiation in this passage. Leadership and ministry for the original Paul was across genders. But guess what? Over time and in various translations, female names subtly get turned into male names. So for example, Junia, who he talks about in Romans 16, is a case that would actually be, you know, it would be comical if it weren't utterly tragic. Paul names her as a fellow apostle. And uh, for the first millennium of Christianity, she's been seen as a woman. But in the second millennium, she suddenly turned into a man. Junior, so the claim goes, was really short for Julianus. And yet, you know, and yet, there is patently, this is patently untrue since there were over, there are over 250 known cases of a female junior in antiquity, but not a single instance of junior being used in as abbreviation of Julianus. So, I mean, this is the kind of stupid thing that happens along the way. But the point is, if junior uh, is allowed to remain female, then since she was named as prominent among the apostles by Paul, it becomes obviously possible, of course, for a woman to be an apostle or whatever else in the church. Of course. Paul had no problem with that. I don't believe he did. Uh, women as well as men were called by God to be apostles and to serve in every different sort of way within the church. I believe that is actually absolutely how it was for Paul. Um, in just the same way that, you know, gender equality existed in marriage and, and the community and, and everywhere else as well, in, in Paul's eyes. Ephesians and Colossians, on the other hand, are examples of what I've called the conservative Paul's writings. Uh, and here you've got, you know, the so-called household code uh, in both of these letters, which is much closer to Roman convention. Um, these passages pull back deliberately, I would say, from the egalitarian position of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 and, Gentile, and, and Galatians 3, you know, the neither male nor female thing. Paul's clear stance on gender equality is uh, de-radicalised in the direction of social society norms in Ephesians and Colossians. Wives, were told there, are to be subject to their husband's in everything. An obligation is placed on husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which many jump on and say, oh yeah, but you know, this is, husbands have got to love their wives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't alter the point, does it, of, of the basic hierarchy that remains, that women are supposed, wives are supposed to be subject to their husbands in everything. Um, and of course, in subsequent tradition, most of the self-sacrifice has been expected of wives, uh, not husbands. And, you know, that continues to this day in, in, in many instances. The teaching and application of these non-Pauline passages by the church over centuries has proven catastrophic for women. And actually for men too, if truth be known, but directly for women. Um, in the early years of our marriage, it was disastrous for Pat because because I bought into male headship as a biblical requirement, you know. I remember pulling into a lay-by, driving home from a conference one day and sobbing and sobbing when I realised what I had done 
to my beloved in the name of obedience to scripture you know it could have killed our marriage actually had i not seen that uh, that i'd bought into something that was completely wrong which i don't think pat ever really bought into at all as i say paul wasn't a feminist i mean that would be a stupid claim but he was a radical and in his genuine writings he challenged to their roots the social norms of rome and the ancient world regarding gender uh, roles as well as slavery but that's for another time uh, he was not the person who wrote first timothy 2 which says let me quote you let a woman learn in silence with full submission i permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man she is to keep silent for adam was formed first then eve and adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor yet she will be saved through childbearing provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty nothing could be further from paul's magna carta of equality and inclusion in galatians and its application uh, that i've referred to in one corinthians and i for one would dearly love to confront vehemently whoever did write that in first timothy its impact has been horrendous um, i strongly oppose that interpretation of genesis and i very strongly oppose uh, its oppressive consequences for women i remember talking with a couple uh, a long time ago in a house church where the husband was told by his apostle that he could become an elder if he quote brought his wife into submission brought his wife into submission i mean she was a lovely feisty intelligent woman far more intelligent than her husband uh, with far better leadership qualities too by the way so he did his best to bring her into line as it were destroying the marriage in the process it ended and she went on to become a university professor don't know what happened to him the text the elders used to lever this guy into his stupid blundering action was 1 timothy 2 let a woman learn in silence to have no authority over a man etc well i say bloody balderdash whoever wrote it but i don't believe uh, that it was the apostle paul who wrote it i know critical reading of the new testament you know can be confusing and perhaps unnerving depending on your background and what part were you up to in that process but despite his name being attached paul did not write everything attributed to him fact paul wasn't perfect and there are points as i say that i would like to argue with him but he was a radical jewish christian who opposed with his life the might of the imperial empire and we're going to get to more of that uh, next week meanwhile remember the uh, the fresco that i spoke about last week in the grotto to st paul why isn't it a grotto to both paul and thecla the woman who is here standing next to him they are both uh, standing as equal figures proclaiming the word of god uh, the gospel as it were but as we noted last week uh, someone at a later date has scratched out her eyes which was uh, a way of uh, you know undermining the power of the of the icon um, her upraised hand of authority is obliterated 
Um, now, had it been done to both of them, well, that would be a different question. But somebody decided just to do it to Thekla, because this is a picture of equality. So listen, guys, for too long, and in so many ways, members of the church and its institutions have scratched out the eyes of good women, as it were. So, you know, thank God some churches finally do have female priests. It took a long time. Even bishops, pastors, ministers or whatever. But there's a long, long way to go on this and many other issues in our world before we even get close to one of the oldest texts in the New Testament, that in Christ there is neither male and female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, all are one in him and all the other things that could flow from that. I say to, you know, to my friends, to my sisters out there, as I do to our daughters, do not let anyone limit you or hold you back from being all that God made you to be, all that you can make of yourself. Let no preacher, no church functionary, not even any holy book tell you that you are in any way less than any other person, than, a, than any, any man. You are God's beloved, created to be your own unique self. Let no one limit you or box you in. And I believe with all my heart that this is exactly what Paul would say if he was sitting here in this lovely little prayer shed with me now. Amen. So finally, I'd like to pay tribute to the one of the finest souls that I have been privileged to call a friend, a darling of a man called Mike Riddell, married to the one and only delicious Rose. Look at her. Mike's, you know, been ill off and on for a little while, but completely unexpectedly, he passed away in his sleep on Friday at his home in New Zealand. Due to geography alone, we infrequently met with Mike and Rose, but we count them among our nearest and dearest pals. We have had such fun and such affinity with these wonderful people. Mike was a free spirit, a brave soul, one of the most imaginative and talented people on God's earth, a true black sheep and a total sweetheart. Today, I'd like to toast him as he sets out on this next adventure. So uh, I'd ask you now to to uh, pour yourself a glass of something. And uh, yeah, I know I'm far from home, but hey, have whiskey, can travel. So here's a toast to the wonderful Mike Riddell, a toast to his lovely wife, Rose, and their family. I can't imagine how they're feeling. Uh, at the sheer shock of losing Mike at this time. It's also a toast to women everywhere who refuse to let other people's expectations lock them in or limit them, whether it is in, you know, the name of God or religion or whatever. A toast to life in all its wonderful wonder and diversity. Dear friends, to life. Lachaim. That's wonderful. And I have a prayer that I'd like to pray, especially at this time. Loving God, in your eyes, there is no Jew, Christian or Muslim, no Buddhist, Hindu or even atheist. People, when people don't believe in you, you still believe in them. In you, there's neither Russian 
nor Ukrainian, neither Tory, Labour or Nationalist, but only people, your people, who cherish their loved ones, their friends, their dogs and cats, who long for a peaceful world where all may prosper and be included. In our helplessness to change the world, in our vulnerability and confusion, may we know divine equanimity, calmness of spirit, that we may serve each other with glad and hopeful hearts, come what may. Amen. That's great. So, look guys, if you like the Holy Shed, if you like what's going on here, then uh, you can buy us a coffee or a whiskey or whatever uh, with the help of this site, the coffee site. The link is on the screen. It's always also at the top of posts on the Holy Shed Facebook page. Thank you so much, dear friends, for all the support in many different ways that you give to us that helps us to keep going, you know. Now, Soul Space on Thursday... If you've never been to a soul space, you really should give it a try, you know. Don't be afraid. It's only Zoom. Uh, wonderful music, videos, stories and images and poetry and me. What more can I say? This time our theme is you need strength to hang on. You need strength to let go. I think it's a message for our times. So, you know, join us if you can. And uh, over Easter, I've said before, I'm leading a retreat at Amadown for a long Easter weekend, which I can't wait for. That's going to be absolutely wonderful. Amadown is a brilliant place. Love to have you with me if you're free. Uh, and incidentally, just to flag it up right now, I'm also going to be leading a retreat in Yorkshire at Scargill in September. More of that to follow. But you can find details on their website. So now blessing. The blessing of God, the eternal goodwill of God, the shalom and salam of God, the wildness and warmth of God be among us and between us now and always. Amen. So there it is, my lovelies. Uh, the sun's just trying to pop through. Um, there's that pile of lovely yellow daffodils all smiling at me. I saw a very interesting looking bird land right down by the river and uh, oh, I'd love to see what it is, but it probably won't stay there for me. Um, but thanks for joining me here in Worcestershire and um, I hope you'll join me again next week have a great time throughout this week um, you know I think that most people want to be kind to other people I think it's something that we should all aspire to a simple grace be kind to those around you but most of all be kind to yourself because without that you'll never manage to really be kind to other people Stay human and I'll see you soon. And I'm going to leave you with a video uh, by two sisters, Leah Song and Chloe Smith. They're sisters who together are Appalachia Rising. And uh, this is uh, their song together with a dance uh, on the theme of resilient, which very much undergirds because I think women have had to be very resilient through the centuries and still do in many ways in our society. Um, the video was made, they said, to be, you know, simple, stark and engaging uh, of the viewer in, in the intimate space of each artist. Um, they said they wanted to strip away the clutter of objects and centralize the song on a common humanity. 
And um, yeah, I think it's great, you know. Resilient is meant to be a, a tangible, graspable, relatable folk song for people of all backgrounds and walks of life, they said. So get a piece of this, get your own resilience uh, working as you watch this lovely video. See you soon, guys. Lots of love. I am resilient I trust the movement I negate the chaos Uplift the negative I'll show up at the table again and again and again I'll close my mouth and learn to listen
trust the movement I negate the chaos Uplift the negative I'll show up at the table Again and again and again I'll close my mouth and 